Foul Perfection Essays and Criticism by Mike Kelly Edited by John C. Welchman 2003 Part 2 Hollywood Filmic Language Stuttered, Kaltiki the Immortal Monster and Rose Hobart JCW this text was originally written as an informal introduction to Kelly's contribution to a course on film called The Seven Deadly Sins, taught by the seven core graduate MFA faculty at Art Center College of Design, Pasadena, in 1992. Each faculty member selected and introduced two film screenings during the 14-week semester. The choices Kelly presents here reflect his desire to focus on movies outside the canon of art films, as well as his effort to figure out exactly what it was that he liked about these pieces. As he notes below, Kelly had heard and read about Rose Hobart, 1939, but had never seen Joseph Cornell's film before the Art Center screening. Unsure whether it had a soundtrack, it did, he brought along a stack of period music. As he reported later, his first viewing of the film confirmed most of his preconceptions, though the print he ordered didn't have the expected blue tint, so Kelly projected it through a filter. A version of this piece appears in More and Less, Edition Silver Lot Ringer, Pasadena, California, Art Center College of Design, 2001, pages 125-131. Ideally, the film theorist should be someone who both likes and dislikes the cinema. Someone who once loved film but who has stopped loving it in order to approach it from another angle, making cinema the object of the same visual instinct that had once made him a fan. Someone who has broken off his affair with movies as people sometimes break off love affairs, not to take on a new lover but to dwell upon the old one from a more elevated position. Someone who has incorporated the cinema into his own psyche so that it is susceptible to self-analysis, but incorporated it as a distinct organism rather than as an affliction of the ego, an infection that paralyzes the rest of the self in a thousand tender and undemanding ways. Someone who has not forgotten what being a fan was like, with all its emotional vicissitudes and palpable immediacy, and yet who is no longer overwhelmed by those memories. Someone who has not allowed his past to give him the slip but who keeps it under close watch. To be and not to be, ultimately, in order to speak, one must both be and not be involved. Christian Metz, Le Significant Imaginaire 1 I feel the kind of separation from film that Metz describes. However, I am a critic only by default, because my removal arose not out of a conscious decision, but was simply a natural fading away from film. These days, I no longer feel great pleasure in watching films. But this was not always the case. When I was a child, and especially in my college years, I was a film buff. I went to films constantly and enjoyed the sensation of becoming engrossed in them. When I go to the theater now, all I can see of the film is a series of edits and framing decisions. I find that I am more interested in watching the audience watch the film or in, say, the collision between the theater architecture and the window of wonder it enframes. And it seems that I am not alone.
Since the 1970s I've noticed that audiences increasingly refuse, or are simply unable, to become quietly consumed by films. Instead they talk back to the screen, vocally trying to second-guess the action, or they ignore the film altogether and chatter right through it about some unrelated subject. Perhaps this is because, today, we are films. We have become filmic language, and when we look at the screen all we see is ourselves. So what is there to fall into or be consumed by? When looking at something that purports to be you, all you can do is comment on whether you feel it is a good resemblance or not. Is it is a flattering portrait? This is a conscious, clearly ego-directed, activity. I want to discuss two films that predate the onset of my critical frame of mind. They are both films that once quite moved me. The first, Kaltiki the Immortal Monster, 1959, awed and disturbed me as a child. One particular scene, where the blob sucks a man in and spits out the skull, has become permanently lodged in my memory. Seeing the film again recently, I was surprised that it still has an effect on me. Surprised, because I have many memories of film experiences from my youth, and they are really confirmed when rewatching the films as an adult. The second film is a short called Rose Hobart made by the artist Joseph Cornell. Point two up until now I have not even seen this film. Yet I always wanted to see it. I have always loved both the descriptions and the idea of the piece. I hope my discussion here is somehow confirmed when I finally get to see the film, but if not, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Both films have a relationship to Hollywood films, but at the same time are not Hollywood. They have an investment in the dominant visual language we share, yet stand outside of it. As Matt suggests, this double address somehow positions them as critical films. Made in 1959, Caltiki the Immortal Monster is an Italian B-horror film directed by Riccardo Frida under the English-sounding pseudonym Robert Hampton. In Italy the horror genre is associated with the Gothic, which is considered an Anglo-Saxon form. When Frida began making horror movies, there was really no history in Italy of this genre, and, though critically admired, Frida's first attempt, titled The Devil's Commandment, 1957, in English, was a flop. For his second film, Caltiki, he and the entire crew adopted American-sounding names. Viewed and reviewed in Italy as an American film, it was a commercial success. Caltiki is credited with originating the trend of European filmmakers using English-sounding pseudonyms to gain more widespread local acceptance. Point three. As for the film looking like an American film, it doesn't. American Gothic horror films, like such Universal Pictures gems from the 1930s as Frankenstein, 1931, and Dracula, 1931, were long gone by the 1950s, replaced by sci-fi, Red Scare, and nuclear paranoia films, all less psychological, and with a veneer that was much more present and socially concerned, or by films geared toward the new upwardly mobile teen audience. These last include tongue-in-cheek horror films like The Blob, 
1958, a truly pop-up film about the exploits of a group of pretty teenagers in hot rods interacting with a giant piece of bubblegum-like goo. Produced a year later, Kaltiki could be considered a remake of the highly popular Blob. But what a difference! It's hard to believe that the film was actually taken for an American film. The pace is too slow, the mice end scene too dismal, and the acting too melodramatic. Superficially, the film is a standard gothic toss-off. It has all the traditional elements, primal evil is encountered in a remote, ancient, primitive locale and transported back to our more civilized one where it causes a fuss but is finally mastered. It replaced the symbolically familiar horror film scenario in which repression erupts, only to be happily contained. But in this case, I find I am attracted to all its particulars, despite the tired plotline. I like, for example, the overbearing Freudian imagery. When discussing psychoanalysis, Freud's most common metaphors are archaeological ones, going down is going inward. Point four. Our hero in Kaltiki is an archaeologist who journeys down into a cave, then further down into a watery pit of death. To discover what? A formless pulsing shit pile. Formless blob monsters are my favorites, by far. I much prefer them to thinly veiled genital stand-ins. They are sublime in their unparticularity. I like them for the same reason I like another guilty pleasure, biomorphic abstraction. They are dirty pictures that you can make into whatever you want. The perfect image of a class-conscious monster, Kaltiki closely resembles a filthy janitor's rag. Yet he, she slash it is imbued with a certain subtle, festive quality, as if coated with a light dusting of glitter. The film as a whole has a dirty, murky, soiled look to it, as if we are peering through a muddy windshield, it seems to have been shot entirely day for night, so every scene is uniformly gloomy. Yet it has a real visual beauty that overpowers its narrative ineptitudes, and it convinces us, by virtue of this very combination, that its flaws are purposeful. It's easy to see how a film like this could lead to later neo-surrealist films such as David Lynch's Eraserhead, 1977, in which programmatic disparities are consciously deployed. A few of my favorite scenes. 1. The initial tracking shot of the ruins, so dark they are barely legible, coupled with dramatic voiceover. 2. The amazing transition from the painted backdrop of a ruin with a spurting volcano to the jungle camp set. 3. The pulsing blob in its Tupperware case, great suburban horror. 4. Of course, the main scene is the finale in which the growing blob literally fills the luxurious mansion, oozing down the halls as if they were intestinal canals. 5. The trek of the madman after he escapes from the hospital. I particularly like when he falls face down into the flower patch. And the scene of him exiting over the hill. Oddly enough, one of the brightest spots in the film. Rose Hobart was the first film made by the homegrown American surrealist Joseph Cornell. Then in 1936, it is one of the few films, if not the only one, he completed himself. Many were finished later, 
in the 1960s by younger avant-garde filmmaker friends including Ken Jacobs and Stan Brackhag. Known mostly for his dreamlike box constructions, Cornell was also an avid collector of films and film stills. Rose Hobart is a re-editing, down to less than 20 minutes, of the exotic Hollywood action feature East of Borneo, 1931. Cornell removed the soundtrack, replacing it with two alternating Latin American dance tunes from Holiday in Brazil. The original screening instructions called for the entire album to be played in darkness before the film began. Also, the film was projected through blue-tinted glass. The title Rose Hobart derives from the name of the popular female star of the earlier film, and Cornell's film can be seen as a kind of film portrait, the byproduct of desire. What interests me most in this piece is the idea of editing down, or condensing, and the relationship of this process to desire itself. It could be that Cornell is simply getting to the good parts, picking out what were on his reckoning the choice pieces of the older movie and throwing the rest away in a gesture that recalls the tactics of the Italian futurists. In his manifesto, The Variety Theatre, 1913, Marinetti, for example, called for the condensation of all Shakespeare's plays into a single act, or the presentation of all the Greek, French, and Italian tragedies, condensed and comically mixed up, in a single one evening, five but the futurist celebration of speed, power, athleticism, and worldliness runs completely counter to Cornell's reserve, his pulling back, his denial. For Cornell, what is important is not just a compilation of the desired object, but also a condensation of the mice in scene that charges it. The overall blue tone pushes the film further away into the depths of the screen, yet at the same time intensifies it and makes the film materially more present. All narrative film condenses time, yet part of our acceptance of filmic convention is predicated on our ignoring this fact. We experience film time as real time. Cornell further condenses this condensation into stillness, into an uncanny frozen movement that has the sense of being both dead and alive. When asked about his films, Cornell would rarely say anything specific. Instead, he would tell an anecdote recalling the cover of a film magazine he had once seen, or an empty film set lying and used at night. Point six, these were always things related only obliquely to film, though enlivened by conjunction with it, and given movement by association. This quality is present in his box sculptures, where time seems frozen, and dead objects appear to have a life that has just left them. It's also a quality shared with the earlier pictorial surrealists and their affiliates, especially Giorgio de Chirico. With Cornell, film becomes a found object in the surrealist sense. It is an object encountered by chance, one that is outside of you, yet is you. The mysterious attraction that you have for it is an indicator of the hidden part of yourself that resides in it. It is up to you to develop the strategy to mine that secret. Kaltiki and Rose Hobart, then, are two films that comment on standard filmic language in interesting ways, one by default, through unfamiliarity or ineptitude, and the other through willful readjustment. To me, 
the inept film has more latitude. For what we get from Cornell's re-editing is more a portrait of Cornell's desire than anything we can share. In Caltiki, on the other hand, we are left to go through this process on our own. We make our own edits, mentally. Yet, the film remains a whole, taunting us, asking us to experience it in terms of an us rather than as an I. It's very failure to do that, it's uncomfortable double nature, makes it a success point seven. Filmic Regression, The Baby and Baby Huey JCW The second of two pieces Kelly wrote as introductions to film screenings in the MFA program at Art Center College of Design in the early 1990s, see also Hollywood Filmic Language, started, above in this volume, Filmic Regression, The Baby and Baby Huey is a meditation on the regressive experience of film viewing read through two lurid representations of infancy, in Ted Post The Baby, 1973, and the character Baby Huey, introduced by Paramount slash Famous Studios in 1951. A particularly violent Baby Huey cartoon, starting from Hatch, D.I.R. Seymour Nightel, 1953, was screened. Ted Post attended the presentation and revealed that the script of the baby, based on real-life events, was so shocking that he decided to shoot the film in a flat, realistic manner in order to defuse its exploitational qualities. Kelly's discussion of a filmic regression originally bore the subtitle Cinema, Mommy's Little Helper, which points to the key suggestion Kelly offers here, that film is a replay of infantile experience. This proposition relates to his career-long, intermedia inquiry into regression, repression, and adolescence, especially visible in his work with stuffed toys and craft materials, which commenced in the later 1980s, and in more recent activities such as the investigation of memory pathologies, including repressed memory syndrome, in projects such as Educational Complex, 1995. A similar version of the text was published in More and Less, Edition Silver Lotringer, Pasadena, California, Art Center College of Design, 1999, pages 125 to 33. First of all, the film experience is one of regression. You couldn't speak of suspension of disbelief if this weren't true. For what is being suspended is some notion of a critical egotistical me which allows for domination by something perceived of as outside the self. Freud's concept of the death instinct, the desire to return to the pleasurable, egoless state of prenatal existence in the womb, is important here. Point one, like many religious temples that refer to the body of the great mother, the dark theater where we experience cinema could be considered a womb substitute. But the film event is a shared experience, involving something more complex than a simple autistic abandonment of the ego. Witnessed, even if dimly, by others around us, our experience, we could say, is a socialized, superego-dominated form of regression predicated on an outside object. Melanie Klein argues that object relations exist from the beginning of life. The first, or primary, object, she argues, is the mother's breast, 
and other object relations develop from an initial relationship to this object. Point two, psychoanalytic film theory offers many correlations between the breast and the film screen, of which the scale of the screen to the viewer is, perhaps, the most obvious. In his book Film and the Dream Screen, Robert T. Eberwein suggests several further analogies, ranging from the relationship between opticality and orality in the infant, sucking motion signal the advent of REM sleep, to a discussion of Julia Kristeva's contention that the breast, being a focal point, becomes it there, an initiation into space. Point three, even at this point, it is not an outside space, but to borrow D. W. Winnicott's term, a potential space for a space the infant cannot separate from itself. In this scenario, the breast is an illusion, something the baby creates out of itself for its own needs. How like the film experience, where we see the film action as some necessary projection of ourselves. Developing her discussion of the breast as primary object, Klein explains how the breast, once experienced as an other, becomes split into a good, gratifying, breast and bad, frustrating, breast. She argues that this consciousness of the breast as other arises from envy of the breast's ability to give, which is proven by its capacity to withhold. The infant then projects this envy, or desire to take in and control the breast, onto the breast itself, which becomes a devouring, controlling, Critical breast. Point five. This notion of the critical breast could also be applied to the film experience. A film that gives, that absorbs and gratifies us, is a good one. A film that denies or frustrates us, leaves us self-conscious, and refuses to absorb us, is a bad one. Looked at in this way, it is easy to see how someone like Adorno could interpret mass culture as negatively regressive in that it infantilizes the audience. He writes, The tone adopted by every film is that of the witch handing food to the child she wants to enchant or devour, while mumbling horribly, lovely, lovely soup. How you're going to enjoy it? And he concludes that the culture industry not so much adapts to the reactions of its customers as it counterfeits them. Six here Adorno adopts the role of adult critic, one who refuses to be absorbed. This is also the role of avant-garde cinema and the art film, where disruption techniques and alienation devices are applied to standard filmic language to expose its seductive and devouring nature. What interests me, in particular, is how a certain theme can have the same disconcerting effect as deconstructive film techniques, even when this theme is packaged according to the most normalizing Hollywood conventions. Infantilism, it seems to me, is one such theme. Ted Post the Baby, 1973, is a profoundly disturbing, I would even say radical, film largely because it does not allow viewers to immerse themselves in it in any simple sense. On the surface, infantilism might be the perfect subject for a Hollywood film, as understood by Adorno, at least, precisely because of the apparent parity between subject and effect, regression delivers regression. But things don't always work like this, especially in the baby. Perhaps there's a kind of double negative at work here, where regression plus regression equals self-consciousness. 
But the main reason I think the baby is so disturbing is because it is a drama. Highly problematic subjects are generally dealt with in genres that have license to be more unrealistic. In both horror and comedy films, for example, there is more distance and removal. Infantilism has been a fairly common theme in Hollywood recently, as evidenced by a number of role-reversal comedies, such as Big, D.I.R. Penny Marshall, 1988. The problems that the baby posed are revealed very clearly in how the film was packaged and publicized. The print ads portray the film as either horror or softcore porn, neither of which is really accurate. The film is shot in a very unexpressive, realist style, and there is nothing in it that points overtly to its filmic nature. No embellishments such as fancy color, elaborate camera movement, or disruptive cinematography break through its uniform facade. In fact, the film reminds me quite a bit of a television docudrama, it's hardly surprising, since Ted Post has been one of television's longest working directors. Point seven in the end the repressive, almost puritanical, style directs our full attention to the film's storyline. But this absorption does not come easily, however, because the film is decidedly amoral. When dramas tackle controversial subjects, they generally do so by taking on the role of a doctor. They seem to issue an implicit, but terse, command, this is strong medicine, but it must be swallowed for your own good. It's instructive to consider the baby in light of the recent popular fixation on issues of child abuse. The theaters and airwaves are flooded with dramas, such as Bump in the Night, D.I.R. Karen Arthur, 1991, dealing with abuse and incest, which almost uniformly adopt the strictest of tones. In order properly to excuse the audience's morbid fascination with such themes, a clear moral message must be given, a lesson has to be learned. By contrast, the baby comes off as almost surrealist. It seems to proclaim, desire above all. And, we are left to wonder, whose desire, what desire? The dynamics of viewer and character identification in the baby are very complex. At one level, the film could be seen as a simple Oedipal fantasy in which a person, male, is allowed to stay an infant in what would normally be a completely nurturing, female, universe. But, as it turns out, gender roles are not so clear in this film. The mothers are bad mothers, and, following from this, in a sense become fathers. Baby is saved, but how is he saved? He is rescued not to be gently ushered into adulthood, as we are at first led to believe, but to remain a baby and to be mothered well. He is literally allowed no voice, a truth chillingly depicted in a scene where he is tortured with a cattle prod for uttering a single word. The figure that seems to signal baby's entry into the adult world of speech has her own agenda and her own desire. Everything else is just facade, her choice of profession says it all, she is a social worker. The baby of the baby is a perennial baby. As the hero of the film, he becomes our role model prompting an identification, of course, which is too painful to maintain. We are forced, rather, into the position of the bad mother. Either way, 
it's a no-win situation, the regression at stake here is not back to an idealized childhood or to some sexy never-never land of female bounty, and there are no heroes to emulate and no morals to be learned. The only escape route is into black humor. Baby Huey is a classic example of sublimated regression, which is not only filtered through the form of comedy but in this case through animation as well. Point eight made at a time when cartoons were still designed for a general audience, adults as well as children, Baby Huey cartoons were made for theatrical release. Famous Studios, which produced Baby Huey as well as Casper the Friendly Ghost and Little Audrey, is credited with being the first studio to gear their cartoons specifically to very young children. Point nine today, when cartoons are relegated to Saturday morning television, this is one thing. But back in the 1950s, it was quite another situation, as the entire adult portion of a movie-going audience was forced to sit through these infantile productions. Combined with their production line mode of creation, if a visual gag provoked laughter in three test screenings, it was put in every cartoon from then on. 10. This is one reason historians of animation generally despise these cartoons. They signal the end of serious animation and the rise of kid vid. Even for the child audience, Baby Huey is a baby, posed in a lower strata and clearly more inept than the young viewers themselves. For the child there must be a perverse pleasure in seeing the normal family hierarchy reversed. By virtue of its size and strength, the baby lords over the pipsqueak adults. The cartoons are funny because, despite baby Huey's ineptitude, the adults are even more inept. Baby Huey is an uncontrollable force undaunted by the world's problems. However, for the adult viewer forced to sit through them, these cartoons are something else. It is hard to find anything pleasurable in them. Baby Huey's innocent triumph over mean friends, inattentive parents, and a pedophile fox can only be enjoyed by regression to a childhood that consists only of pain. While the child viewer might see these cartoons as a playful transcendence, the adult can experience them only as a painful reversion. Baby Huey cartoons might be entertainment to the child, but they become art to the adult forced to sit through them. Otherwise, they are unendurable. From the sublime to the uncanny, Mike Kelly in conversation. With Thomas Msevely. JCW. This conversation on the relation between the sublime and the uncanny took place in the New York apartment of the art historian and critic Thomas McKeeverly in December 1992. It was printed, in a slightly different form, in the catalogue for the exhibition Sons Beak 93, edition Jan Brand, Catalyne de Mwink, and Valerie Smith, Arnhem, the Netherlands, Sons Beak, 1993, accompanied by letters from Kelly to curator Valerie Smith describing his plans for an exhibition within her exhibition on the theme of the uncanny. Ernst Jensch's essay, On the Psychology of the Uncanny, referred to by McKeeverly, was discussed by Freud and is cited by Kelly in Playing with Dead Things, On the Uncanny, his catalogue text for the exhibition he curated, The Uncanny, following in this volume, it is translated by Forbes Morlock in Angeloki 2, number 1, 1996. Notes on some of the artists, 
John De Andrea, Dwayne Hansen, and issues discussed or alluded to here accompany playing with dead things. Thomas McKeeverly, Son's Beak is usually an exhibition of site-specific work, yet you're not involved in that, are you? Mike Kelly, what I like about art is that it embraces falseness and allows for non-specificity. So an art whose very definition is specificity is uninteresting to me. I prefer ambiguity. I won't say art is false, since art always engages reality, if you think about it in psychic terms. But I want to distance myself from the belief that art is about truth, and I've never liked public art anyway, because it forces an aesthetic onto people. I prefer people to engage with something because they choose to. TM so you will use the museum. MK yes. The artwork I've proposed is to curate an exhibition for the museum. TM is it a museum intervention, in which an artist creates a show out of a museum's collection, usually turning the museum against itself in some way, having certain parts of the collection criticize others, and so on. MK I'm just going to use the museum's exhibition space to show works borrowed from elsewhere. TM what will determine the works that you will gather? MKM after a certain feeling. I want to put together works that produce an effect like Freud describes as the uncanny. All the works will be figurative. TM such as. MK I want to include artworks ranging from various sculptures like Dwayne Hansen's to handy nasty tomb sculptures, as well as non-artworks, things like mannequins and, hopefully, a mummy. TM your point in doing this is not. I gather, to survey different approaches to representing humanity. M.K. Wright I'm proposing that art basically addresses death, it's about representation, using doubling as a defense against the fear of death. And death strikes me as an important issue relative to postmodernism. T.M. Yes, in its being supposedly art after the end of art, art after its own death. M.K. Wright and also, the return of figuration seems to me to evoke the tradition of the artwork as a memento mori. Some works in the show will be documentary photos accompanied by appropriate quotations, passages from Freud, a section from the biography of Ed Gain describing his relationship to corpses, for example. Point one. TM I think I see where you're tending. In his essay, The Uncanny, Freud refers to an earlier essay by Jensch who, he says, identified the uncanny as involving doubts whether an apparently animate being is really alive or conversely whether a lifeless object might not be in fact animate. Two Jensch referred to the impression made by waxwork figures, artificial dolls, and automatons. Would that be the modality of the uncanny you're focusing on? MK Yes. I think the currently embarrassing aspects of primitive or religious artworks, their supposed magical qualities, confusions about whether they're alive or dead, and so on, are still at play somehow in modernist works, though modernism tried hard to repress that. TM in the expression theory of art, for instance, the idea that the artwork is expressing something fetishizes it by implying it has intentions and desires. M.K. Freud states that these feelings are biological. 
They still operate even though one invents sublimatory rationales to deny that fact. TM so the figures you choose will convey this feeling of uncanny uncertainty about the interface between life and death. M.K. Wright And the effect is compounded by the fact that, until recently, academic art was forbidden, taboo, in the realm of fine art practice. So not only is there this strange feeling produced by the question of realistic art being alive or not alive, there's also the strange attraction slash repulsion to something that's forbidden. Figurative art itself is like a corpse or mummy, and one wants to resuscitate this forbidden thing, bring it back to life. Because it's bad, one wants to make it good again, breathe life into it. TM the project seems to introduce into sculpture some of the postmodern tendencies that appeared in painting about 10 years ago but haven't been so prominent in sculpture yet. I mean the postmodernist subversion of the modernist idea of history by using formal concepts that are out of date or that reverse the flow of history, and the perverse iconicity of so-called bad art, as in the bad painting show of 1978.3. M.K. Of course, a kitsch sensibility is observable in an artist like Jeff Koons, for example. T.M. Sure, but by and large sculpture hasn't confronted either the idea of the bed or post. Modern archaizing as much as painting has. M.K. I would agree. But the uncanny is not specifically a modern or postmodern phenomenon, it's a psychological experience. TM so are you going to avoid specific emphasis on these postmodern traits of your project? MK I'm hoping to avoid having the show understood as an exercise in kitsch. My work has often been described as glorifying kitsch, which I've always denied. The kitsch-loving sensibility usually implies the superiority of the viewer, who is in control and knows better than to show a real investment in something that is commonly held in contempt. In effect, kitsch can only be embraced ironically. Now, the uncanny denies this, you are affected by these images beyond your control. Whether one feels superior to these objects or not is a moot point, because one is affected by them on an unconscious level. TM your focus on uncanny figuration is right in line with your remark that the fundamental subject of art is death, isn't it? MK death forces one to confront materiality. I want to focus on the material nature of art production, which I don't think painting can. This is why I have such a big disagreement with Greenbergian ideas about painting, because painting can never be truly material. TM because it represents, even if it only represents a void. MK yes. TM still... I think painting is sometimes purely material, though in a sense it becomes sculptural in this condition. MK I would agree with that. TM a painted canvas can be used as a sculpture. MK it reminds me of Leo Steinberg's idea of the flatbed painting point four if Pollock had left his paintings on the floor, they would have been sculpture, but he didn't, he put them up on the wall. He made space out of them. TM yes, Greenbergian materiality always had a hidden spirituality in it. But then, in early works of minimal sculpture, say, Carl Andres, Bricks on the Floor, 
you got a frank confrontation with the material nature of it all. MK There was a shift in the 20th century in the meaning of materialism, away from realist depiction to an emphasis on matter itself. So in minimalism one is confronted with the base materials that make up daily life, like the base materials of the architecture one lives in presented in an unformed state. And what happens is, one becomes strangely body-conscious in this situation. The focus of the art experience shifts from experiencing an object to experiencing oneself in relation to the object, environmentally. TM I see what you mean. MK this self-conscious state is, I think, very close to the uncanny. One becomes aware that one is not, normally, self-aware. T.M. Wright at the beginning of his essay Freud says, the uncanny belongs to all that is terrible, to all that arouses dread and creeping horror, five which reminds us, quite directly, of the traditional 18th century writings on the sublime. M.K. that's right. It's very much like Edmund Burke. T.M. and like Kant, who may have adopted many of Burke's views of the sublime, but extended them in an interesting way. For Burke the sublime was anything that is so vast and other that it seems by its very existence to threaten the annihilation of the observing subject. One is witnessing a thing whose inner meaning is one's own annihilation. MK I think minimalism is sublime in that regard. TM but Kant made an interesting shift by saying that any experience is sublime that involves the deliberate subordination of oneself to some force or category supposedly greater than oneself. You had four famous examples that I think were used first by Edison, then by Burke, then by Kant, mountain peaks, storms at sea, Milton's description of hell, and infinity point six. M.K. I love Burke's Compendium of Sublime Subjects. T.M. But aside from that list of awesome, threatening, terrifying, and delightful experiences, can propose that ethical acts are also sublime, because they also involve the denial of oneself in relation to some greater category. M.K. Right. But you could say that that goes back to the original discussion of the sublime by T.M. Longinus. M.K. Yes. His descriptions of the sublime relating to rhetorical concerns in public speech-making. T.M. Except for his remark, which lies in the background of sublime paintings such as Turner's later works, or Jericho's Raft of the Medusa, that a picture of the sublime might show the entire world being torn apart. It's only a step from that to the abstract expressionist sublime, say Barnett Newman's, the portrayal of the void into which one's selfhood will supposedly dissolve. Which gets us right back to Gentsch's idea of the uncanny as the interface between life and death, or animate and inanimate. M.K. or the loss of self. I think Longinus is an interesting writer to think about propaganda through. Propaganda is sublime in that it causes one to accept ideas, that one wouldn't normally accept, as one's own. It's an interesting entry into discussions of fascism, for example. TM the sublime does have that tendency, doesn't it? So the idea of the sublime, when extended in that way, goes very far. MK very far, into political considerations.
TM for example, the experience of beholding an artwork or literary work which one basically doesn't like, and making an effort to appreciate it by getting into an alien point of view, might be a sublime act on this Kantian model. MKA loss of self in any way. TM any willing loss of self. I mean, the sublime in Burke. MKO, but that's unwilling, in Burke it's unwilling. TM well, he talks about the delight of the storm at sea and so on, and one can imagine him climbing up to mountain peaks in search of the sublime experience, like they did so commonly a couple of generations later. MK but wouldn't that be a kitsch sublime? TM but that's how the sublime functions as a cultural presence, through this deliberation. I mean, one gets on a motorcycle and goes a hundred miles an hour at night to deliberately feel the terror and wonder of the sublime. MK right. But I don't know if that could really be considered sublime. I mean, that I would willingly take a risk, not to annihilate my ego, but to promote it, to prove my greatness, my strength. TM well, again I see what you mean, but I think that at a certain point in experiences like that there is just the sheer, hair-raising terror of the sublime, going beyond any mood of self-congratulation. MK well. TM what I'm driving at is that, in terms of embodying it in artistic objects, the sublime has been approached primarily by way of trying to shadow forth the formless in art. MK like monochrome painting. TM yes. But by focusing on the uncanny rather than the sublime, you've reversed the direction. Rather than approaching the formless beyond, you propose to show that form from which life has just departed, or might be just about to depart, into that hypothetical beyond. So you're showing the small-formed reality into which the sublime is ingressing. MK like I said, using an artistic form that itself is dead. TM the resuscitation of the corpse. It's kind of like the sublime as the golem. MK yes. Or Frankenstein. TM aha. MK I was reading some books recently from the early 70s about the first various sculptors like John de Andrea and Hansen. Some really believed that their works were an extension of 19th century realism. That's bullshit. That kind of realism was already impossible because of the irony and formal removal of pop art. I can only see their statues as depicting stock character types. In the Andreas case, I see false idealism, false Greek sculpture, and in Hansen's case false social realism. TM I think of Yves Klein as the first Verus sculptor, for his body casts. MK but, I'm avoiding anything connected with body art and the whole art and life movement. That gets into theater and questions of identity, which I don't want to get involved with. I want to keep away from any focus on the human person except for its sheer materiality. TM along with formlessness, the theme of the sublime in recent art involved a sense of the human individual possessing in a hidden way a potential for vast spiritual greatness. Newman is again the obvious example. But clearly you are approaching it differently. MK Wright I have a big problem with that reading of the sublime. 
my reading is more Freudian, involved with notions of sublimation. I see the sublime as coming from the natural limitations of our knowledge, when we are confronted with something that's beyond our limits of acceptability, or that threatens to expose some repressed thing, then we have this feeling of the uncanny. So it's not about getting in touch with something greater than ourselves. It's about getting in touch with something we know and can't accept, something outside the boundaries of what we are willing to accept about ourselves. TM you're not concerning yourself with what's on the other side of that limitation. MK the limitation is us. I'm not interested in what's not us. But to keep talking about it in relation to the threat of physical annihilation separates the project too much from aesthetic discourse. And I want that also to be a part of it. It's about one's interaction with an object, not just one's interaction with oneself. The focus is on the object. TM still, the object and the self tend to merge in this case, since the sublime, as the uncanny, leads immediately to a contemplation of the death and decay of the body. MK well, of course. Why else would one want to make a mummy, or a statue, or any representation at all? Playing with dead things, on the uncanny. MK. The Uncanny Project grew out of a collaborative work with Paul McCarthy, Heidi, Midlife Crisis Trauma Center and Negative Media in Graham Abbey Action Release Zone, made for the LAX show at the Krinzinger Gallery in Vienna, 1992. In preparation for that installation-slash-videotape, I began to collect images of figurative sculptures that had qualities I was interested in duplicating in the figures included in our project. When Valerie Smith invited me to propose a work for the sculpture exhibition Sons Beak 93 which she was curating in Arnhem, Holland, I suggested an exhibition within the exhibition of figurative sculpture, curated by me, based on my collection of images. The simple exercise of grouping resource materials together on a pin-up board became the basis for the exhibition of sculpture, objects, and photographs titled The Uncanny. Traditionally a show of outdoor sculpture, Sons Beak 93 had been updated to include site-specific works situated throughout the area of Arnhem. I chose a different approach, to utilize the Gimienta Museum, the art museum of Arnhem. The project was a response to the prevalence of postmodern discourse in the art world at that time, specifically, issues of recuperation of outmoded models of art production. Thus, the Uncanny was purposely designed to be an old-fashioned, conservative museum exhibition in contrast to the many artworks in Sons Beak 93 that were installed in non-traditional sites. As such, the project was somewhat of a joke on site specificity as a gesture of a resistance. However, I did not want the exhibition simply to be understood as a parody. I took my role as art curator seriously, researching and writing a catalogue text, designing the installation, and laying out and overseeing the production of an exhibition catalogue that was completely separate from the main Sons Beak 93 catalogue. The theme of the exhibition centered on Sigmund Freud's essay, The Uncanny, 1919, 
which I had found stimulating and helpful in relation to the creepy qualities of the images I had collected for the Heidi project. The exhibition itself consisted primarily of figurative sculptures, ranging from ancient to contemporary, which had an uncanny aura about them, but also included non-art objects that had a similar quality, such as medical models, taxidermy, preserved human parts, dolls, life masks, and film special effects props. A large collection of historical photographs relative to the subject was also presented. The exhibition was laid out in a traditional manner, except that at the end of the show there was an anomalous gallery containing objects that seemed quite unrelated to the rest of the exhibition. This room contained 14 separate collections of mine, ranging from my childhood rock collection to a contemporary collection of business cards. These collections were referred to as harems, a term used to describe a fetishist accumulation of fetish objects, which are generally like in character. This final harem room was meant to question the purpose of the exhibition. What had appeared, on the surface, to be a sensible presentation of objects organized thematically could then be viewed simply as another manifestation of the impulse to collect, an example of Freud's principle of a repetition compulsion in the unconscious mind. It is the recognition, in the conscious mind, of this familiar but repressed compulsion that produces a feeling of the uncanny. I wanted this notion of the uncanny to be considered as well as the more familiar version related to depictions of the body and the unease they instill in us because of how they make us conscious of our own mortality. This essay is a slightly modified version of that published in the catalogue for Kelly's exhibition The Uncanny, 1993. Kelly placed a bibliography of sources after the essay, which I have incorporated, with additions, into more specific endnotes. A brief section from the essay discussing the Acker Museum was published in Forrest J. Kackerman, Daniel Faust, and Mike Kelly, Monster Mans, Grand Street, New York, No. 49, 1994, pages 224-33, see note 17, below. Conceived in the early 1990s, this piece is the culmination of the artist's long-standing interest in the iconography and social effects of mannequins, dolls, and other figurative forms usually considered marginal to the fine arts tradition. The central concerns of playing with dead things and the reading of Freud's signature essay, The Uncanny, 1919, that it contains, relate Kelly's discussion to a number of similarly predicated writings published around the same time, including Anthony Vidler's The Architectural Uncanny Essays in the Modern Unhomely, Cambridge, Massachusetts, MIT Press, 1992, Hal Foster's Compulsive Beauty, Cambridge, Massachusetts, MIT Press, 1993, and Terry Castle's The Female Thermometer, 18th Century. Culture and the Invention of the Uncanny, New York, Oxford University Press, 1995. Fetishes, idols, amulets, funeral images, dolls, waxworks, mannequins, puppets, and, most dramatically, automata, all play their part in the vast substratum of figures which historians used to rank far below sculpture as a fine art. Many of these artifacts have a basis rooted, 
not in any Western concept of beauty, but in some very practical purpose. And only recently have the liberalizing tendencies of modern art and the discoveries of archaeology finally compelled historians to consider the aesthetic merits of these and an increasing range of other anthropomorphic forms. A history of human images, free of what the art historian Wilensky refers to as the Greek prejudice, has yet to be written. Jack Burnham, 1968, 1. Puppets, mannequins, waxworks, automatons, dolls, painted scenery, plaster casts, dummies, secret clockworks, mimesis and illusion, all form a part of the fetishist magic and artful universe. Lying between life and death, animated and mechanic, hybrid creatures and creatures to which hubris gave birth, they all may be like to fetishes. And, as fetishes, they give us, for a while, the feeling that a world not ruled by our common laws does exist, a marvelous and uncanny world. Janine Shaskets Mergel, 1984, 2. It may be true that the uncanny is nothing else than a hidden, familiar thing that has undergone repression and then emerged from it. Sigmund Freud, 1919-3 What I'm after is a group of objects that, like the original collection of images I pinned to my wall, share an uncanny quality. What this quality is, precisely, and how it functions, are difficult to describe. The uncanny is apprehended as a physical sensation, like the one I have always associated with an art experience, especially when we interact with an object or a film. This sensation is tied to the act of remembering. I can still recall, as everyone can, certain strong, uncanny, aesthetic experiences I had as a child. Such past feelings, which recur even now in my recollection of them, seem to have been provoked by disturbing, unrecallable memories. They were provoked by a confrontation between Ikmik and an it that was highly charged, so much so that Ikmik and it become confused. The uncanny is a somewhat muted sense of horror or horror tinged with confusion. It produces goosebumps and is spine-tingling. It also seems related to deja vu, the feeling of having experienced something before, the particulars of that previous experience being unrecallable, except as an atmosphere that was creepy or weird. But if it was such a loaded situation, so important, why can the experience not be remembered? These feelings seem related to so-called out-of-body experiences, where you become so bodily aware that you have the sense of watching yourself from outside yourself. All of these feelings are provoked by an object, a dead object that has a life of its own, a life that is somehow dependent on you and is intimately connected in some secret manner to your life. In his essay, The Uncanny, 1919, Freud writes that the uncanny is associated with the bringing to light of what was hidden and secret, distinguishing the uncanny from the simply fearful by defining it as that class of the terrifying which leads us back to something long known to us, once very familiar, for in the same essay, Freud cites Ernst Jensch, who located the uncanny in it doubts about whether an apparently animate being is really alive, or conversely, whether a lifeless object might. 
Not in fact the animate, 5 he also lists Gentius examples of things that produce uncanny feelings, these include, waxwork figures, artificial dolls and automatons, as well as epileptic seizures and the manifestations of insanity, 6 Freud's essay elaborates on, but also narrows, Gentius definition of the uncanny, and I will return to it later. When I first read this essay, in the mid-1980s, I was struck by Gentius' list and how much it corresponded to a recent sculptural trend, popularly referred to in art circles as mannequin art. Freud's influence on the surrealists is well known, and it is possible that his essay on the uncanny might have had something to do with the development of avant-garde interests in the mannequin, which reached its zenith in the 1930s.7 But rather than attempt to document aspects of this history, I want to concentrate on mannequin art as a current phenomenon. My reasons for undertaking this exhibition were timely ones, I was interested in examining a current trend, jumping on the bandwagon, if you will. It seems that every ten years or so there is a new figuration exhibition of some kind, it the most recent being post-human, 1992.9 obviously, figurative sculpture is in the air, and there are enough artists committed to new considerations of the figure to devote an entire exhibition to contemporary manifestations of this theme. But what is particular to this current reevaluation of the figure? According to Jeffrey Deitch, curator of post-human, the Freudian model of the psychological person is dissolving. There is a new sense that one can simply construct the new self that one wants, freed of the constraints of one's past, ten in new, is the primary adjective in Deitch's essay, the world will soon be, and is becoming eleven, it is a world where technological manipulation of body and mind is at our fingertips. This distinct new model of behavior and a new organization of personality, twelve sounds very much like the model offered by early science fiction, or like the modernist version of a technological utopia. When I look at the work presented in Posthuman, I don't find myself marveling at the newness of it, but wondering what differentiates the material it foregrounds from artworks of the past. For me, history is not denied here, it is evoked. Thus, I decided to not limit my exhibition to contemporary works alone, but to include a wide range of historical examples of figurative sculpture that have the quality I am interested in. It's much easier to group together a selection of like objects than to describe why they are like. Perhaps a good place to begin, then, is with what I excluded from the exhibition. These considerations noted, what constitutes these objects' similarities will hopefully become clearer. Scale It is important to me, first of all, that the objects displayed maintain their physical presence, that they hold their own power in relation to the viewer. I decided, therefore, to exclude miniatures, smaller-than-life-size statues, dolls, toys, figurines, and the like from the exhibition. Generally, I believe that small figurative objects invite the viewer to project onto them. By this, I mean that the viewer gets lost in these objects, and that in the process of projecting mental scenarios onto them they lose sense of themselves physically. The experience of playing with dolls is a case in point. 
The doll becomes simply an object to provoke daydreams, and its objecthood fades into the background. Once the fantasy is operating, it could be replaced by any other object. On the other hand, I am interested in objects with which the viewer empathizes in a human way, though only as long as the viewer and the object viewed maintain their sense of being there physically. There are, however, some less-than-life-size objects that have an uncanny quality, even though our perception of it differs depending on the age and experience of the viewer or participant. I would include stuffed animals, transitional objects, fetishes, and magical objects, such as Egyptian funerary sculpture, in this category. For the very young child, a stuffed animal is not simply a model of some agreeable object, a friendly animal or an object to weave fantasies around, like a doll. It is primarily a tactile object associated with great physical pleasure. It is very present. This is even more the case with the infant's transitional object, which has been called the child's first not-me possession. 13. This object represents the mother in her totality, and its tactility and smell are of utmost importance, to the extent that if the transitional object is washed it ceases to be comforting. As figurative sculpture, transitional objects are especially interesting in that they do not picture the mother. They can take the form of a simple piece of cloth, for instance. Yet they function in a very real way as substitutes for the mother and as extensions of the child itself. The same may be said of the pervert's fetish. Point 14 It is an object that does not picture what it symbolically stands for, yet it holds the same, often greater, power than that thing itself. The small, lifelike depictions of servants performing various tasks that were buried in the tombs of Egyptian royalty are magical objects. They were believed actually to carry out the functions depicted for the dead person who owned them in the afterlife. The literalness of the objects is revealed by the fact that sometimes the figures are jointed, allowing the limbs to move. In the case of magical objects, size is usually of little importance, though there are some that equal the weight or size of the thing mimicked. For the Egyptian tomb sculptures, scale was probably determined by convenience, so that more figures could be fitted into the tomb. Point 15. In photography, where size is indeterminate, the problem of scale is obliterated. My original pinup board held images of objects of many different sizes. Yet on that board, they all read as one size, the general height of a human being. Because all of the objects were figurative, the human body became the primary referent for scale. Even though I am mostly interested in the relationship between the physical viewer and a three-dimensional object, I have included photographic documentation of objects in the exhibition. In part this is because many of the objects I wanted could not be borrowed or no longer exist. But once photography was a part of the exhibition, I decided to include art photography as well. In all cases I am treating photographs as documentation of figurative sculpture, including some for which this is not actually the case, such as Cindy Sherman's photographs of medical demonstration models arranged into figures. Despite visual clues to the contrary, 
Laurie Simmons's photographic tableaus of dolls invite a reading of the figures as human size and as alive. For similar reasons, I have also included in the exhibition special effects objects produced for films. Film special effects models are designed specifically to be seen only through the medium of film and are often destroyed after or in the process of being used. This hidden nature is part of their appeal as objects, for a lingering sense of their filmic reality lies behind their shabby or provisional appearance, soliciting our investment in the belief that they were once convincingly alive. A strange corpse-like quality surrounds them. Like Egyptian funerary sculpture, their true size is inconsequential, eclipsed by their ritual relationship to filmic reality. Willis O'Brien made a number of special effects objects for the 1933 film version of King Kong.16 They range from small, doll-sized versions of the giant ape, animated through stop-frame photography, to full-sized hands, heads, and feet big enough actually to hold or step on a human being. The parts only formed a full figure once they were spliced together in film. In the same manner, Filmic fragments spliced together in the editing process also configure the various Kong parts into a living being, the experiential equivalent of Frankenstein's monster, a being composed of dead body parts, sewn together. Divorced from the fictive entity for which they substitute, these FX parts definitely have an uncanny quality. Forrest J. Ackerman, former editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, has created the largest existing collection of horror and fantasy film special effects objects, which are displayed in his home in the Hollywood Hills. Turing it is like walking through a morgue.17 everywhere there are recognizable fragments of Hollywood film reality. But, unlike a normal museum where things are organized in a seemingly logical way, his collection is arranged like a child's bedroom, things are piled everywhere in a cacophony of film history. In one corner there is a rubber cast of Jane Fonda's breasts used in the filming of Barbarella, 1968, and a wall of life masks of actors, including those of Bella Lugosi and Vincent Price. In another, a faux Black Panther head from The Most Dangerous Game, 1932, the head of an extraterrestrial from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, 1977, and various other claws, body parts, and models from films long forgotten. On a shelf is a small clay animation figure by Ray Harryhausen, 18 experienced on the movie screen as a gigantic monster. Upstairs, in the living room, is a one-eyed blob from an episode of the science fiction television series Outer Limits. This prop is close to five feet high, yet I remember it as almost microscopic on the TV show. You realize that to experience the projected figures on the movie theater screen as life-size involves the reduction of your own body to the size of a doll, while with television, conversely, you must mentally blow yourself up to the size of a giant to account for the minuscule scale of the figures on the small screen. All of this hit home when I was confronted with Ackerman's collection of objects never meant to be seen in the light of day but only under the magic lantern of film-induced daydreams. Refusing to give up their dreamlike reality, his statues keep me deterred outside of consciousness. 
They were too familiar as intensely felt memory simply to become objects. My response to Robert Graham's work raised some interesting problems regarding scale in relation to this exhibition. I had considered exhibiting one of Graham's works from the 1960s in the show, specifically, one of the plexiglass cases housing minutely realistic wax female nudes. Point 19 I finally decided not to include one, for, in my view, their analogous relation to dolls and their submission to the criteria discussed above meant that the viewer's experience of this work was more mental than physical. Graham's objects provoke a voyeuristic mental scenario akin to looking through the walls of a bachelorette pad with X-ray SPEX. To enjoy this fantasy fully, viewers must imagine themselves shrunk down to the scale of the figures, thus negating the true sculptural presence of the objects. The transparent dollhouse-like structure that encases the nudes is like the movie screen, an invisible barrier that allows dreams only if one gives up their sense of physical presence and scale. Nevertheless, a certain amount of perverse presence is maintained in Graham's work. The fact that the plexiglass cube is also an art world signifier positing a relation to the then-current minimalist aesthetic makes it impossible to dismiss it outright. A similar double message is also present in Graham's later monochrome bronze work, life-size sculptures of almost classical female nudes or horses set atop simple geometrical forms which act as pedestals. Point 20 While the reference to Konstantin Brancusi is obvious, the simplified figurative forms in his totemic sculptures are replaced by incredibly detailed ones, with the result that the figures are unmistakably portraits of actual young women. This shift from the general, or should I say essential, to the specific is quite disturbing. The sculptures invite you to experience them formally, yet the sexual component is too strong for one's encounter to terminate on the surface. The women or horses are often raised just high enough that their genitals are right in your face. This formalizing of the display of genitals reminds me of a bust of a man found in the ruins of Pompeii. This highly realistic portrait of a male head sits atop a simple geometrical pedestal of torso height that has no other adornment except, at the proper position on the pedestal, an equally realistically sculpted penis and patch of pubic hair. The pedestal becomes an obvious geometrical stand-in for the body, with all other features except head and penis removed. Point 21 Such a mixture of sexuality and order might have seemed natural in the classical period, but it provokes a more complex, dialectical reaction in the 1990s. Despite their formality and colorlessness, Graham's bronze figures demand to be experienced as flesh and blood, like the classical sculptures which, while time has washed them clean of their painted flesh tones, still retain their bodily sensuousness. Graham's bronze ballet dancer bodies have surrounding them a mental aura of color, the remembered color of sex, that denies their timeless monochrome facade. Color Historically, literalness has been considered the enemy of art. Along with material itself, color is one of the most loaded signs of the quotidian. The literal use of material is a non-sequitur in art. No one would seriously consider the idea of sculpting a body out of actual flesh or carving a rock out of stone. What would be the purpose of such a redundant exercise? 
Color is thus set at a difficult conjunction between sign and signified, a problem that is negated in painting because it operates in two-dimensional mental space, which is why painting has been king of Western art history, with sculpture relegated to the role of its idiot cousin. Naturalistically colored dolls, mannequins, automata, and wax portrait figures are not included in the generally accepted version of Western art history, and polychrome religious statuary is on the lowest rung of the art hierarchy. Until recently, it would be difficult to come up with much of a list of polychrome figurative sculpture from the fine art of the last century. Even the realist movement produced almost nothing. I can think of no single 19th-century polychrome realist sculpture. The closest might be Degas's The Little Dancer of 14 Years, 1880-81, a slightly smaller-than-life-size bronze figure with painted clothes and a skirt made of real cloth.22. Because of its mix of sculptural convention and literalness, Degas's figure is still perversely interesting today. It truly looks like a statue that has been dressed in children's clothes. It is the only one of his sculptures that Degas exhibited during his lifetime, but it was very well received. Point 23 Joris Karl Huysmans, the artist's contemporary, wrote that it was the only really modern attempt of which I know in sculpture. 24 One wonders what influence, if any, mass produced, commercial mannequins, a familiar part of urban life in the later 19th century, had on the work. Featured in the picture windows of many large stores, 19th century mannequins were incredibly realistic, with naturalistic wax heads, outfitted with glass eyes and human hair, and extremities. And they were often displayed in elaborate window tableaus utilizing real furniture and props and painted backdrops. The erotic allure of the new mannequins was noted by both the anti-naturalist writer Hoismans, who concentrated on the variety and naturalism of their breasts, taking classical Greek sculpture to task for the uniformity and monotony of its depiction of this part of the female anatomy, and the realist Emil Zola, who said that they had the disconcerting lasciviousness of the cripple 25. Besides the Degas, there is little that could be said to have been influenced by these popular sculptural developments. Most realist sculpture of the period concentrated on social subject matter to evoke realism, substituting members of the working classes of great men for the nobility that were the subject of previous heroic sculpture. Only the colored sculpture of the academic Jean-Leon Jerome breaks with the monochrome trend. Jerome's The Ball Player, 1902 represents a female nude calf from marble, tinted naturalistically and covered with wax, giving the surface a skin-like quality. Point 26 Jerome was an admirer of the painted figures unearthed at the Boeotian town of Tanagra, which had further upset the myth of pure white Greek sculpture. Appropriately enough, another of Jerome's tinted sculptures, though now bleached white, offers a version of the myth of Pygmalion and Galatea. Recounted by Ovid in The Metamorphoses, the story tells of a sculptor who falls in love with one of his statues, which is then brought to life by Venus.27. Not much more is to be found in the 20th century either, and most of that can be seen as an extension of painting. 
I would say that the painted wooden sculpture of the German Expressionists, the patchy archaism of Manuel Neri and Marino Marini, and the beat collage works of Robert Rauschenberg, such as his famous monogram, 1959, which includes an expressionistically painted stuffed goat, all serve primarily to extend notions of painting, either by treating three-dimensional objects as analogous to the painting support, or by producing three-dimensional embodiments of painterly, gestural distortion. By and large, modernist works continue on with the Greek prejudice, the neoclassical misconception that classical Greek sculpture was uncolored. Modernist essentialism understands this colorlessness as one of the truth s to materials it defended the truth of archetypal, not specific, representation. Thus, a bronze or stone sculpture is left unadorned to reveal its true coloration. Or, if the female form is alluded to in a horns up or bronchusi, for example, reference is not made to a specific body, but to the form of femininity in general. Truth arises from the base material, gives rise to archetypal meaning, and issues in timeless truths. The sign for the timeless is monochrome. It isn't until surrealism, and later pop art, that the truthfulness of an image is examined in relation to daily experience, either as a psychologically determined phenomenon, or simply as the byproduct of culturally produced cliches, truth is not a timeless given but a socially constructed fact. Whilst others fish with craft for great opinion, I with great truth catch mere simplicity. While some with cunning gild their copper crowns, with truth and plainness I do wear mine bear. Troilus speaking to Cressida 28. Citing this passage, Psychoanalyst Janine Shaskets-Mergel suggests that idealization is only a thin film disguising an unchanged material, a mechanism aiming at masking the self. It also shows that there are human beings that prefer truth to mendacity. 29. The context, here, is a discussion of fetishism and perversion, which are connected with sham, counterfeit, forgery, fraudulence, deceit, cheating, trickery, and so on, in short with the world of semblance, thirty perverts tend toward aestheticism, she maintains, they often have a love of art and beauty, and this is likened to the infant's wonder at the accessible parts of their own bodies, and their love of shiny end. Animate external objects, like dangling pieces of colored glass. Such external beauty is compared to the embalming of corpses, where makeup is applied to imitate life, and, in Egyptian funerary practice, this decorating impulse is continued with jewels and other precious materials until the dead body is sculpted into a god, that is, a fetish, an idealized substitution for something secret and shielded. This example recalls a recent account of the actions of the murderer and grave robber Ed Gain who, after his mother's death, dug up the graves of women roughly her age and brought pieces of them home. 31 Gain found solace in these body parts, which seemed to him like dolls, and in some cases he even wore them, becoming a surrogate for his mother's living being as he went about his daily life. Searching Gain's house, investigators found boxes of body parts, some dabbed with silver paint and decorated with bits of ribbon. 
Shas gets Mergel's examples present surface decoration in this kind of pathological light, tying her aesthetic to modernism's stripped-down essentialism. Her moralism here strikes me as somewhat surprising, in that one would imagine that a psychoanalyst would have more sympathy for the complexities, and poetics, of the interrelationship between psychic and daily reality. In her account, color is false and pathological, it represents lies. This idea of color as misrepresentation is quite different from my own understanding of the tendency toward non-coloration in modernism, which I interpret as a sublimation of surface variance and complexity reaching for an idealized, though shadowy, essential reality. On the social level, Shaskets Mergel's moralistic take on coloration is beautifully illustrated by an occurrence in Beverly Hills, a wealthy city within the Los Angeles city limits. In the 1970s a mansion was purchased there by a rich Saudi Arabian sheikh, Muhammad Al-Fassi. The sheikh decorated his house in a thoroughly garish manner, including, for example, a row of copies of classical statuary painted naturalistically, right down to the pubic hair. These works initiated an ongoing battle between Al-Fassi, his neighbors, and city government that ended only when the house was burnt down by an arsonist.32 Even though we now know that Greek statues were painted when they were made, their present function as a popular sign of taste and order will not allow this fact to be recognized. The timeless order of the neoclassical conception is an appropriate symbol for the upper classes. Kitsch, outwardly characterized by gaudy colors, is a cheap and false version of the true, made for and consumed by the underclasses. What was most dangerous about El Fassi's painted statuary was that it hinted at presentness, a here and now that always entertains the possibility of a loss of position and power. The sheikh's sculptures were symbolically unsuitable objects for the decoration of a Beverly Hills mansion. No wonder, then, that aesthetic arguments can shift into violence when the politics of the sign are so loaded. Certain contemporary works re-examine the tensions between the Platonism of modernism, as signified by monochrome coloration, and an unsettling sensation of the real, manifested especially through the evocation of self-conscious body awareness. The recent sculptures of Bruce Nauman, composed of wax casts of human heads in various single colors, and the paintings of Jasper Johns that incorporate cast wax or plaster fragments of body parts participate in this reassessment.33 In both cases, it is the tactile quality of the material that supersedes the coming effect of monochrome. Wax is so flesh-like in consistency, and has such a long history of usage as a flesh substitute in popular sculpture, that notwithstanding the various formal tropes utilized in these works, it is impossible to experience them in a purely formal way. The fragmentary nature of the body parts, reinforced by the organic qualities of the wax, strongly suggests the disordering of the body. Indeed, it's difficult to imagine that any ordering principle applied to them could offset the uncanny feelings thus produced. I would say that Nauman's minimal organizing strategies make these feelings even stronger. When applied to body parts, Basic compositional exercises, like up versus down or in versus out, come off as cruelly tongue-in-cheek. 
These simple organizing gestures cannot help but remind viewers of the actual morphology of the body and of their living bodies in particular. Everyone knows how the body is organized and how many of each part he or she has, this is a given and is never thought about. To become aware of these particulars, one must imagine oneself unwhole, cut into parts, deformed or dead. The body part and wholeness. While studying the ancient sculptural ruins in Rome, Auguste Rodin made a statement that was obviously meant to apply to his own work as well. He said, Beauty is like God, a fragment of beauty is complete. 34 This thought links Rodin unconditionally to the Cubist movement that followed him and confirms his position as a protomodernist. Each piece is a microcosm of the whole, and each piece is a whole itself. Part and parent body are linked together by some essential glue that makes them a unit, a platonic whole. This essentialism prevents the modernist work from degenerating into an image of chaos and, instead, makes it complete. The various fracturing strategies of the cubists and futurists, the close-ups and severe croppings of modernist photography, the reductive principles of early abstraction, and the pinpoint material focus of minimalism and monochrome painting all rely on the benevolent metaphysics of essentialism to prevent the aesthetics of exclusion from being seen as cruel. Herbert Reed distinguishes Honoré Daumé's sculpture from Rodin's by claiming that Daumé was not modern because he was a caricaturist. 35 He states that the deformations of the caricaturist have nothing in common with the formal conceptions of Rodin. What is the difference? I would say the main difference is whether cruelty is openly addressed or not. In Domie, the figurative deformations are conscious attacks on specific physiognomies. In Rodin, the cruelty of his deformations has been sublimated into aesthetic and metaphysical discourse. You can argue with Rodin's success in his endeavors, but you are not allowed to question his motives. Henri Matisse, for example, takes Rodin to task for sacrificing the body's completeness to the sum of its parts, his work is not whole enough. Matisse, I would assume, felt that Rodin's work was not optically simple enough, it could not be taken in in one glance. In Rodin's terms, however, this would be a mood point. If each fragment is really a whole, then the reorganization of parts back into a greater whole, fragmentary or provisional as it may seem, cannot diminish their wholeness. This way of conceptualizing allows Rodin to play quite nasty formal games while still allowing him to keep his noble status. Not that Rodin wasn't criticized for his work. A cartoon published in Lushivery in November 1913, headed The Balkan Atrocities, shows a commission of inquiry examining a group of mutilated torsos and body parts in a war-torn landscape, accompanied by the caption, Oh! What fine models for Rodin, 36 writing in 1925, Fred Wellington Ruxtal alludes to Rodin's practice of making full figures in clay which would then often be cut apart and rearranged, with some parts ending up on different figures or exhibited singly. But why any man, he wrote, should, today, deliberately model a human body and then mutilate it and then hack it, and exhibit it, except as a revelation of his sadistic soul, 
passes our comprehension. 37 He goes on to denounce Rodin's statue as a cadaver. As Rodin's reputation firmed, these criticisms were considered philistine, the true viewer saw no sadism, and such views were not worthy of critical discussion. At that moment in the art world, there was no place for the fragment as fragment. The part and lack, the organs without body. In recent art, the modernist notion of the fragment as a microcosm has given way to a willingness to let fragments be fragments, to allow partiality to exist. As in the case of Nauman's uncomfortably dysfunctional formalism, wholeness is something that can only be played with, and the image of wholeness only a pathetic comment on the lost utopianism of modernism. It is comparable to a kind of acting out of socially expected norms, the presentation of a false true self, long after the notion of a unified psychological mind has given way to the schizophrenic model as the normative 1.38 now, shem, falseness, and all the other terms that once were pejorative have become appropriate to contemporary notions of the function of art. Surrealism offers some of the earliest examples. Salvador Dali wrote in 1930 that it has to be said once for all to art critics, artists, and see that they need expect nothing from the new surrealist images but disappointment, distaste and repulsion. Quite apart from plastic investigation and other bunkum, the new images of surrealism must come more and more to take the forms and colors of demoralization and confusion. 39 Dolly's inspirations, masturbation, exhibitionism, crime, love, 40 and surrealism's basic motivating factor, desire, all point toward lack as the focus of art. Art is creation in response to lack. Quite different from a stand-in for the archetype, which must be there, somewhere, the art object is a kind of fetish, a replacement for some real thing that is missing. The surrealist artist Hans Balmer constructed a life-size figure of a young girl in the early 1930s. This figure was fully jointed and came apart in pieces in such a way that it could be put back together in innumerable ways. He also made extra pieces that could be added so that the figure could have, if desired, multiples of some parts. Balmer's playful dismantlings and reorganizations of this figure were documented in a series of photographs, most hand-tinted in the pastel shades of popular postcards. The doll is a perfect illustration of Balmer's notion of the body as anagram, the body as a kind of sentence that can be scrambled again and again to produce new meanings every time. Point 41, the starting point of desire, with respect to the intensity of images, Balmer wrote, is not in a perceptible whole but in the detail. The essential point to retain from the monstrous dictionary of analogy slash antagonisms which constitute the dictionary of the image is that a given detail such as a leg is perceptible, accessible to memory and available, in short is real, only if desire does not take it fatally for a leg. An object that is identical with itself is without reality. 42 The sentence of experience is recalled through the syntax of remembered moments. For Balmer, the shifting of attention during the sex act from one body part to the next is presented in terms of a kind of futurist simultaneity, all at once rather than one after the other. 
This flow of physical recollection is further intensified by the crossover of one body part into another, as one part becomes associated with or a stand-in for a different part. Freud calls this anatomical transgression, a situation in which certain parts of the body lay claim as it were, to be considered and treated as genitals. 43. This is even a part of normal asexual practice. The polymorphous perversity of infantile sexuality has found its way into a canon of socially acceptable genital substitutes. Partiality to the lips, breasts, or the ass is not seen as strange at all. 44. In fact, a number of years ago in Penthouse magazine there was a very popular series of letters supposedly documenting the interest of various men in female amputees, obsessions that were often explained by the fact that their mothers were amputees. Here, the fetish is not a part that can be objectified, but a missing part, an absence. The castration reference is inescapable. The ready-made and the double. When Balmer says that an object that is identical with itself is without reality, 45 I immediately think of Marcel Duchamp's ready-mades. Without doubt, these objects constitute the most important sculptural production of the 20th century, precisely because, in the simplest and most concrete package, they present reality as impossible to concretize. Duchamp achieves exactly what I presented before as an impossibility, he sculpts an object in its true material. He performs the sin of literalism and demands that it is art. The problems these pieces raise are so numerous that it is difficult to know where to begin to talk about them. On one hand, they react against the accepted notion of art as a facade, preoccupied with representation, by presenting a real object as art. On the other hand, they reduced the modernist idea of art as materially self-referential to an absurdity, for it is impossible for these real objects, once presented in the context of art, to maintain their real status. As art, they dematerialize, they refuse to stay themselves and become their own doppelgangers. The categorical confusions raised by the ready-made make them the father of all the time-based work that followed, the progenitor of everything that traversed the slippery dividing line between sculpture and theatre, between what is in time and what is out of time. One need only think of Piero Monzoni's, obviously Duchonian, act of signing live nude models as artworks in 1961.46 Here the problem raised by Duchon is made evident. If real objects are going to be art, what are the rules and limits of this as defined in time? Duchamp's ready-mades do stick to one historical convention of art-making, they are impermanent materials, he can be credited with inventing sculptural still life. Yet, their status as real objects problematizes this reality, one wonders when they are a real object, and when are they an illusion. It is not a difficult jump, then, to shift to the use of organic materials that have a limited life, they die, they rot. Were Manzoni's nudes still art when they put their clothes on? Were they art when they were no longer young? Are they still art, and if so, how, after they are dead and gone? Statues and death The issues raised by time-based and body art are too complex to deal with in this short essay.
I have decided to limit myself here and in the uncanny exhibition to the representation of the inanimate human figure. The long history of figurative sculpture has normalized representations of the body, taking the edge off of our experience of such objects and preventing us from having the same ambivalent relationship with them that we have with Duchamp's ready-mades. This has not always been the case. The history of Western art is also the history of Christian thought, and this is a history where image-making, and especially statue-making, is fraught with controversy. Thou shalt not make to thyself a graven thing nor the likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, nor of those things that are in the waters under the earth. Exodus 20 verse 4 Interestingly, during the Middle Ages it was believed that sculpture was a more recent artistic development than painting, a reversal of the opinion commonly held today. Point 47 Technical advances in art were equated with an accelerating evil, probably because they were seen as being at a further distance from the simplicity of Eden. All sculpture was dangerous and linked to idolatry, it was seen as a proud attempt to compete with God's creation of man in his own image. The Eastern Church believed there should be no sculpture in the round at all, so that flat or slightly raised icons were the only appropriate religious images. The test of acceptability was to see if you could grasp the figure's nose. Point 48 All sculpture was perceived in religious terms. Crusaders ritually knocked the heads, arms, and legs off of pagan idols, which were often, in actuality, secular sculptures. Many classical and Roman portrait sculptures were probably destroyed in the belief that they were images of unknown gods. Nevertheless, colored sculpture was employed as a way of teaching the Book of God to those who could not read. Point 49 Various pagan beliefs and customs were absorbed and tolerated by the Church as a way of attracting pagan converts. The adoration of statues of Christian figures as idols was bound to happen despite the fervent attempts of Christian iconoclasts to stop it. As late as the early 19th century, an archbishop ordered the destruction of a palm ass, a realistic statue of Christ, elaborately dressed in rich attire and seated atop a statue of a donkey on wheels, which allowed it to be rolled in Palm Sunday processions. Despite the protest of the people.50 the attention and riches heaped upon these basic figures were embarrassing to a church whose main tenet is the denial of the physical world and body. The power of statues that performed miracles or healings, which could not be denied, for God is capable of such things, was often explained as the work of devils, beings who had totally surrendered to the illusions of earthly desire. But the Catholic Church was not willing to give up the use of statues, for they were crucial tools for reaching and educating the public. Yet their usage could not be policed. Those physical things that were designed to recall the immaterial God and the dead saints became idolized themselves. The desire for God in material form is too great to repress. Because of their construction in permanent material, statues, as with the ready-mades, constantly evoke in viewers their own mortality. Indeed, this could be said to be the main point of Christian statuary, to rub people's noses in their own mortality so that their minds were forever focused on the afterlife. And this is probably why, in the modern era, 
figurative sculpture is held in such low esteem, for this primitive fear cannot be erased from it. The aura of death surrounds statues. The origin of sculpture is said to be in the grave, the first corpse was the first statue. And early statues were the first objects to which the aura of life clung. Unwilling to accept the notion of himself as a material being with a limited lifespan, man had to represent himself symbolically as eternal, in materials more permanent than flesh. It is supposed that our early ancestors believed themselves to be surrounded by the ghosts of the angry dead, angry because the pleasures of the body were denied them. Point 51 To ward off such ghosts, early societies believed that the corpse had to be recreated in permanent material form, or the body itself had to be kept from rotting through mummification. These surrogate bodies then had to be given the things that people need, food, at the very least, and in the case of important people, all of the pleasures they had come to expect in life. I have already mentioned how statues were left in Egyptian tombs to work for their masters in the afterlife. An example of this on a grand scale is found in the life-size terracotta figures of soldiers, servants, and horses, over 7,000 statues in all, discovered buried in the tomb of the Chinese Emperor Qin Shi Huang Ti, who reigned from 221 to 210 B.C.52 This emperor is credited with ending the practice of sacrificing servants in China and substituting statues for them. Still, the importance of these figures as actual replacements is proven by the fact that each figure is different, leading some to believe that the figures were made from life casts of the soldiers themselves. The Statue as Standin this ending of the socially destructive practices of human and animal sacrifice and the burial of precious goods by replacing them with sculptural standings probably came from necessity, yet it established the idea of sympathetic magic, that the image of something could function analogously to the thing itself. Beyond that, this is the germ of the concept of kitsch, a less precious thing could be substituted for a more valuable one. The image was a tool useful but dispensable, a kind of labor-saving device. The Egyptian dead, their bodies mummified to ensure their physical presence in the afterlife, had psychically to split themselves in order to deal with this fact, a premonition, perhaps, of the current notion of a non-pathological, schizophrenic psychology. Point fifty-three: physical presence in the afterlife also meant that physical labor was expected. Image magic was used to escape this commitment. A small statue called an Ashepti figure was buried with the dead point fifty for the purpose of this figure was to do your labor for you when you were called upon to work, the Ashepti answered. A kind of double was created, a shadow of yourself bound to perpetual slavery. All popular sculpture, from votive sculpture, which is a representation of the person making sacrifice before a god, to the most mundane worker replacement like the scarecrow or shop window mannequin, has this plebeian quality. Point fifty-five votive sculpture, ranging from life-size wax figures to small depictions of afflicted body parts that a person once healed, could be said symbolically to represent devotees themselves as sacrificial offerings to the gods. Although these replacements are sometimes highly charged emotionally, and this throwaway quality is repressed, they still have one foot in the garbage dump. 
In the 14th century it was not uncommon for the wealthy to have a life-size, wax votive image of themselves set up in a church perpetually to mourn a dead loved one or to show reverence to a religious image. Churches became so crowded with these figures that they had to be hung from the rafters. Of course, this trash heap of simulated devotees was eventually just tossed out. Point 56. The disposability of the venerated substitute has modern correlatives. We know, for example, that the life-size doll Oscar Kokoschka commissioned to be modeled after the object of his erotic obsessions, Alma Moller, was simply torn apart by revelers at a drunken party after his desire when point 57 the focus of his thoughts for years, this fetish object became as dispensable as an inflatable sex doll available at the corner sex shop. Then there are whole classes of figures designed specifically to be destroyed in use, car crash test dummies, the effigies of hated political figures hung and burned at demonstrations, the mannequins that people the perimeters of nuclear test sites, and the electrified human decoys recently used in India to shock man-eating tigers into losing their taste for human flesh. Point 58 In a way, all these figures are to be mistreated. The iconoclast, the one who feels compelled to destroy images, knows statues invite violence. Like the vampire, they desire a violent death to relieve them of the viewer-projected pathos of their pseudo-life. In a series of famous psychological experiments performed in the early 1960s by Albert Bandura to study the effects of televised violence on preschool children, young subjects were shown films of adults manhandling large punching bag dolls. Point 59 Of course, the children proceeded to beat the dolls themselves, ostensibly proving that the image of violence engenders violence. The experiment actually seems like a study of sympathetic magic in reverse, where the actions of real people become stand-ins for a media image. Couldn't the true purpose of the experiment have been to set up a situation that allowed the adults the pleasure of beating statues using the tried and true excuse that it helps children in some way? In the roughly contemporaneous experiments by Harry F. Harlow that explored mother-child bonding, infant monkeys were given a surrogate dead and a surrogate living mother. Point 60 The experiments were so popular that they were represented at the 1962 World's Fair held in Seattle. Whatever their scientific importance, the experiments found favor with the public by suggesting that the attraction to statues is natural. It was proved that these young monkeys, our uncivilized cousins, love stuffed animals too. Clement of Alexandria's early Christian moral example, offered as an attack on pagan idolatry, is thus reversed if those who keep apes are always amazed that these animals are never deceived by clay or wax figures, they do not mistake them for living things. Now if you cling to those statues and paintings you will be even lower than the ape 61. Aping the Mirror of Nature J. J. Pollard suggests that the Greek artists of the early classical period were able to see their own style in historical perspective, an ability characteristic of very self-conscious ages, like our own point 62 he goes on to note that one symptom of this historical perspective and self-consciousness is archaism, the interest in reviving and reorganizing earlier types. One example he cites relates to the statue of Apollo, 
the central figure on the west pediment at Olympia.63 The Apollo was sculpted in an older style than the figures it is grouped with, leading some to surmise that it is not a representation of Apollo at all, but a representation of a statue of Apollo, it is a statue of a statue. What is the self-consciousness that Pollard describes? It could be a kind of period mindset within which the magical power and perceived efficacy of the image is at low ebb. Writing about caricature in the 1930s, psychoanalyst Ernst Chris pointed out that the existence of such a transgressive aesthetic presupposes the general belief that images do not spur action 64 though he goes on to claim that the aggressiveness of such images precludes their being accepted as art. Point 65 In the years before World War II, caricature was still lively, enough to lie outside the realm of aesthetics. It would seem that modernism, then, is not one of these self-conscious periods, based on its iconoclasm, its stark fear of the image, at least not as it is now generally defined. Unless, that is, the term is broadened to include a figure like Salvador Dolly, who historically participated in modernism, but whose aesthetic has more in common with what has been called postmodernism. With its adoption of bourgeois realist painting techniques, the work of Dolly and René Magritte in the 1920s and 1930s was in direct opposition to prevailing modernist tenets, according to which realism was associated with truth to materials. Point 66 The style of Dolly and Magritte was also antithetical to that of other surrealist painters, like André Masson or Joan Miro, whose paintings, in the 1920s at least, could be said to operate expressively in an attempt to transcend language and the sign. Dolly and Magritte, on the other hand, revel in the cliché. Their embrace of an outmoded technique is woefully perverse. What was to the modernist a despicable world of conventional, academic imagery became an open field of taboos and dead signs that could be rearranged at will. With the work of these stylistically dissident surrealists in mind, it seems improper to speak of modernism and postmodernism as historical movements following one after the other. Point 67 Perhaps it makes more sense to distinguish between modernist aesthetics and the aesthetics of a surrealist such as Dolly with the terms high modernism and low modernism. 68 This divide is mediated by the belief in, or regulation of, a kind of inherent meaning. From the high modernist standpoint, all anti-essentialist work, concerned as it is only with facades, is branded as kitsch. In this regard, high modernism is almost Christian in its moralistic flight from the temporal. Here we have two opposing versions of realism, one based on pure material presence divorced of association, and the other on an empty conventionality. Pop art tried to ride the line between the two, substituting the ubiquitous, hence meaningless, images of everyday life for the geometries of high modernism. The so-called new realism of the late 1960s was often presented as a continuation of 19th-century realism.69 But, even if this was its intent, such continuity was impossible. By the 1960s, the making of realist artworks could be viewed only as a kind of archaism equivalent to making a statue, not of another statue, this time, but of a photograph.
famous for his superrealist statues of female nudes, John de Andrea made several black-and-white works, one was based on the famous newspaper photograph of a student shot at Kent State University, and another represented the artist casting a model in plaster. Even though these works are drained of color, the use of monochrome couldn't be further removed from the conventional, timeless colorlessness of heroic sculpture. The realism of black-and-white documentary photography is the obvious referent. This photographic sense of truth captured in the moment is beautifully undermined here, simply through the process of literalization. When the photo is actualized in sculptural form, truth is dispensed with. The photographic essence of the moment takes on the cheesy pseudo-historical feel of every cheap roadside museum. The Andrea and Duane Hansen were some of the first contemporary sculptors willing to make works that evoked the banality of the wax museum. Point seventy: The literalness of the wax figures found at Madame Tussauds empties them of their magic. These figures, obviously a secular outgrowth of the magical-slash-religious votive figure, are no longer in sympathetic vibration with the souls of their models, they are as dead as the corpses they portray. Many artists could now be said to be working with the kind of formalism of conventions. The sense of these formalist strategies having any real base in fixed laws of order has vanished. Rather, they are dysfunctional mirrors of random cultural conventions. In Jeff Koons's polychrome statues, for example, we are presented with a set of historical tropes, now overtly kitsch, that, by virtue of their placement in the art world, instead of on the knick-knack shelf, as well as the huge price tag, demand to be taken seriously. Yet we all know they only ask for, but do not expect, this respect. They only toy with self-importance. If Kunze's works are kitsch, it is not the kitsch defined by high modernism, the kitsch of those who subscribe to cultural hierarchy, whose laughter at or hatred of kitsch presupposes a feeling of superiority, they are better than it. Point seventy one. I get the sense that most artists now do not think this way. They know all too well that the lowest and most despicable cultural products can control you, despite what you think of them. You are them, whether you like it or not. Cindy Sherman's photographs are a case in point. Rather than photographic odes to pop culture, they are self-portraits of a psychology that cannot disentangle itself from the kaleidoscope of clichés of identity that surrounds it. And one convention is as good as the next. The only test of quality is how well we recognize the failure of the cliché to function as given. In Charles Ray's Male Mannequin, we are presented with exactly what the title announces, a standard, store-bought, nude male mannequin.72 yet the normally neutered figure has been completed with a superrealist cast of male genitals. The genitals prove, quite literally, the figure's a maleness, which had been determined previously by other outward signs, such as physique, hairstyle, and, in normal usage, the clothing it would be dressed in. By this simple addition, Ray's piece raises a plethora of questions. The realism of the genitals throws the stylization of the mannequin into question, 
and although we know that mannequins do not need genitals, they can be seen anyway when the mannequin is performing its proper function of displaying clothes, this somehow doesn't seem reason enough to leave them off. We cannot help but see the mannequin as being castrated, a ludicrous idea to apply to something that never had genitals. Expectation is the key here, we expect certain things of the male human form, we expect certain things of a mannequin, and we are presented here with something that doesn't meet our expectations. It is problematic. It really doesn't matter that the male mannequin represents a human body, for it represents a convention, and, as an artwork, it functions similarly to other works Ray has made with non-figurative objects. There is nothing humanist about Ray's work. Morals are revealed as determined by the convention. I am reminded of a very controversial work from 1980 by the artist John Duncan called Blind Date. The work consisted of Duncan having sex with a human corpse and was presented in the form of an audio tape as a kind of concrete music. Duncan said of the experience, one of the things this piece showed me was that people don't accept death. Until the body is completely dust, people can't accept the fact that someone is dead. To me the corpse was like solid matter that had nothing to do with the person who was occupying it. 73 To those who hold on to an essential notion of the human body, the corpse is inseparable from the life force that once occupied it. To those that do not, the corpse is simply another material. The uncanny. This current tendency of artworks to use as their subject the conventional and the cliché returns us to Freud's conception of the uncanny. Earlier definitions of the uncanny had described it as a fear caused by intellectual uncertainty, precisely what the decontextualizing strategies used by the various artists I have just described are meant to produce, one of the prime examples given being the confusion as to whether something is alive or dead. I have already offered a list of objects said to produce an uncanny reaction, these include waxwork figures, artificial dolls, and automatons, but also the body itself as a puppet, seemingly under the control of an outside force, which is the impression given by epileptic seizures and manifestations of insanity. Freud's contribution was to link the uncanny to the familiar. He defines the uncanny as the class of the terrifying which leads us back to something long known and once very familiar, yet now concealed and kept out of sight. It is the unfamiliar familiar, the conventional made suspect. This once familiar thing is the infantile primary narcissism that holds sway in the mind of the child and is still harbored unconsciously in the adult. The narcissistic personality projects its thoughts onto others, others are its double. The alien self can be substituted for its own by doubling, dividing, and interchanging itself. The transitional object is a locus of such ideas. This object is a combination of itself, child, and mother, and the psychic doubling that results is an assurance against the destruction of the ego. But when the infantile stage terminates, the double takes on a different aspect. It mutates from an assurance of immortality into a sign of egolessness, death. Freud equates this change of meaning to a fall from grace, 
after the fall of their religion the gods took on demonic shapes. 74 The uncanny is located in the uncomfortable regression to a time when the ego was not yet sharply differentiated from the external world and from other persons. When something happens to us in the real world that seems to support our old, discarded psychic world, we get a feeling of the uncanny. The uncanny is an anxiety for that which recurs and is symptomatic of a psychology based on the compulsion to repeat. Freud also claims that, in addition to its more primitive use as a protector of the ego, doubling acts as a safeguard against castration anxieties. Point seventy-five multiplication ensures that the loss of one part is not total loss. Castration anxiety lends the idea of losing organs other than the penis, and the notion of the body as made up of parts, the intense coloring. The fetish, an exaggerated replacement for something that is repressed from consciousness, is subject to these same kinds of doubling procedures. According to Freudian theorists, the fetish is a symbolic replacement for the mother's missing penis. The compulsion to repeat results in the fetish being collected and hoarded. This kind of collection has been called the fetishist harem 76 whether or not we accept castration theory, Freud's ideas still deserve attention for the light they shed on the aesthetics of lack. It cannot be denied that collecting is based on lack, and that this sense of lack is not satisfied by one replacement only. In fact it is not quenched by any number of replacements. No amount is ever enough. Perhaps this unquenchable lack stands for our loss of faith in the essential. We stand now in front of idols that are the empty husks of dead cliches to feel the tinge of infantile belief. There is a sublime pleasure in this. And this pleasure has to suffice. No accumulation of mere matter can ever replace the loss of the archetype. Now, in the role of Sunday curator, I present this exhibition, my harem, the uncanny.